Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekend pop culture roundup. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Sean Pattenden. This week we are delighted to have with us the exceptionally talented Bishop's son from Enniskillen, Mr Neil Hannon, who has spent over three decades making music as the Divine Comedy. And, of course, the theme tune for top priest-based sitcom Father Ted. Yes, listeners, that also includes the number one single that never was, My Lovely Horse, plus the IT crowd. We also welcome glorious pop writer Hannah Verdier into the studio. On this week's show, we're going to be talking to Neil about his retrospective album, Charmed Life. We've also been to the pictures, Separately Mind, to see Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, starring Kate Blanchett and Bradley Cooper. Plus, ease is good. We <laughs> listen to Eel's latest album, Extreme Witchcraft. Plus, we watch new UK indie movie, Framed, which is streaming on Amazon Prime. All this and more on this week's Culture Bunker. Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. Neil Hannon is a musician and songwriter who, as the Divine Comedy, has been making music spanning back to the 90s. Remember them? No one does. <laughs> Next week he releases Charmed Life, the best of the Divine Comedy, a collection of 24 hits and favourites, including National Express, Something for the Weekend and Generation Sex. And after months stuck indoors like the rest of us, he's touring the UK and Ireland from April, including a show at the London Palladium on the 3rd of May. Hello, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Where are you? Hi, Sean. Um, I'm in beautiful Kildare, a bit to the left of Dublin, <laughs> and I'm happy and ready to play. <laughs> Wonderful. Now, you're a radio host now. You'll be telling us off. Your new series, Europop, The Grand Tour, begins in February. Tell us more about this. Yes, uh, Riggsy from BBC Radio Ulster came to me and said, uh, do you want a radio show? I went, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's that <laughs> because, easy. <laughs> uh, well, I'm just very uh, jealous of you guys in media land. I want to play the public. I want to force m- my musical taste down their throats, really. <laughs> uh, and it's uh, a sort of six uh, episode, one hour each uh, in a different part of Europe, really. But there's a mission behind this, isn't there? There's something about how much we listen usually to UK and American documentaries about well, music. Yeah. I mean, you just need to look at BBC Four or Sky Arts. It's all American, you know, or or British kind of music documentaries. And you, you almost never see anything about Jacques Brel or Ennio Morricone or, you know, well, you do sometimes, mm. but, you know, not enough. But it's rarer. Did you make any new discoveries? On this one, I did lots. Um, What's your favourite? You know, obviously, my mind has gone completely <laughs> blank. I had ignored rather Spanish music over the years. I found a couple of really good things. These amazing sort of classical Spanish singers—they're always very sort of strong, serious women uh, with amazing voices. Mm. <laughs> and uh, then there was a couple of new bands. La Bien Querida is a really good one. There was a guy called David Fonseca from. Lisbon, mm-hmm. who, who um, I really like, yeah. I should point out that there is a new song on uh, Neil's new album called Te Amo España, where he hymns his love of Spain, very much in the style of uh, Kenneth Williams's Crep Suzette, because you just sing loads of Spanish words. <laughs> you just go, Tortilla, Guitarra, Sancho Panza. <laughs> what, what's I, like? know. I mean, I did do that for that uh, sort of fake Eurovision last year. Yes. Um, so, so I didn't have long to think about it and um, any sort of woke problems. <laughs> like it, it goes, Te amo España, I'm your greatest fan, yeah? <laughs> beat that, come on, beat that. 
We mentioned my lovely horse up top. I know everyone mentions my lovely horse. I know. But you and your um, is it wife now have set up the My Lovely Horse charity. So it's a song that keeps giving. Well, um, for a start, she's not my wife. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> my extremely long-term partner. I wasn't sure what the legality was No, 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 no. Then, I, I really ought yeah. to marry her. One of these you better things. had. She set up a it's charity getting, using your song title. You've got to marry this woman. <laughs> I know. Well, I do because she's lovely. That's really the main reason. Um, but, yeah, she, no, I, I can't really take any of the credit right. for this. Uh, she and her friends from... Dublin nuts about animals and they uh, found lots of stray horses roaming around and they'd sort of try and get homes for them. And gradually this got bigger and bigger. I said, why not call it my lovely horse rescue? You know, <laughs> and they went, okay. <laughs> and then when we moved out to the country, Kathy discovered her love of pigs and there were an awful lot of pigs mm. that needed rescuing so. for one uh, reason or another, usually because people had bought them as pets and hadn't a clue how to look after them. So now we have 65 pigs. <laughs> Do you my, lovely pigs. my lovely pig. Yeah. Yes. Also, you need a my lovely wife as well at some point. Um, some my lovely of, wife. Yeah. <laughs> to yes. be. Lastly, now, I can't let this lie. Apparently you started learning the piano at seven, but the first thing you tried to do was play the family grand with a hammer. Is that true? And you had to pay with the damages. This is true. Why were you playing the piano with a hammer? I don't know. I was just drawn to it as a toddler, <laughs> you know? And there happened to be a hammer handy. Now, that's the real issue. Mm. Why was there a hammer near a two-year-old? Well, you know what yeah. they say, when you've got a hammer in your hand, everything looks like a piano. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking to Neil Moore in a minute. But we also have another guest. Do we not, Andrew Harrison? We certainly do. Hannah Ferdier is a writer, editor and branding boffin. She learned her trade on Smash Hits magazine birthplace of champions where better to start and she went on to the guardian guide the sunday mirror and many many more hello hannah welcome to the culture bunker hello good to be here so you are still at the forefront of uh, reviewing podcasts for the guardian slides 10 pound notes <laughs> across table um did you get this luxury cheese and wine hamper from us tell us what's going <laughs> tell us what's going on in pod in, in the outside world of podcasting well this one aside obviously is my number one but uh I've got a new uh, second favourite at the moment, which is uh, Wild Things. Have you heard it? What? No, we haven't. Wild yeah. Things. So it's about the wildest people in the world, Siegfried and Roy. Ah. And Roy was sadly maimed by one of his animals. Mm. And it's about the whole story behind that and what happened on that fateful night. Mm. And I was always a little bit obsessed with Siegfried and Roy, so I'm so glad that it's, it's come out. They're being immortalised. They're immortal anyway. Well, Immortalised, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do you think the podcast listening habits have changed as we've all been sort of stuck indoors? I mean, obviously, we found that more people listen to ours. What, what's your professional take on this? I think so. I think audio has been the real thing being stuck indoors because I remember at the beginning of lockdown, I really planned my day. It was all the radio actually kept me company all day long. And I wrote about this and just the way it, it does affect your mood, just being able to listen rather than sit and veg out and watch something. But mm. I think podcasts, yes, everyone's got one now, haven't they? And so it does lead to kind of varying qualities, but there's some really good stuff coming out, I mm. think. So, And I think if ever there was the year when they were going to make, because they were always, I think we think that everyone listens to them, but then you get people like, where do I get these podcasts? So I, I want to really... know, is there a wider audience or is it the same people dipping in and out of more podcasts, do you think? I think it used to be the same people, yeah. um, but now I think it's it's really broadened. 
I don't have any stats to back that up. But that's my theory. <laughs> my anyway. mum keeps saying she wants to listen to podcasts and she says, when are they on? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. You know, on 275 and 285 in the medium <laughs> wave. Uh, Howdy, you're still doing, are you uh, still doing your Verdier happy hour where you get sort of gym refuse next to dance to pop mm-hmm. music for hits, fitness I, and health? I very much am. Yeah, this hey. is my side hustle. So people in their 40s and 50s might not want to go into a massive intimidating gym playing Stormzy all day long. I mean, I love it. <laughs> But there's another way. So we all go outside. We put the hits on. I let people choose the music because if not, they just get Pet Shop Boys all day long. Um, and it just really works. It, and it's to we're not looking for any goals or any gains. We're just improving the mood and it really works. What tunes? What are, what are the ones that really get the uh, the fat flying off? <laughs> we don't Feel mention the, the word fat. Feel don't say the, the F word, yes. We don't, I absolutely hate any culture around that as well. Um, salt and pepper, of course. And right. any... Push sort it. of late 80s, early 90s rave. Yeah, push it. Oh, and you get everyone singing along and trying to do the rap. And it really does. Everyone just has that moment where they connect through the music. Sounds lovely. How fantastic. <laughs> Before we crack on, a tiny reminder. You can get The Culture Bunker and all our shows early and without ads when you support The Bunker on Patreon. That means episodes on politics, science, pop culture, much more every day, plus all sorts of amazing merchandise, deeply fashionable mugs and T-shirts. All you have to do is search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. Neil Hannon of The Divine Comedy is our special guest today. Over a 30-year career, he's been everything from a one-man Edwardian Pet Shop Boys to the Jacques Brel of Britpop to the Northern Irish Noel Coward and the Scott Walker of Derry. Neil is one of my favourite bands. He's written about everything from city-to-city travel to the Good Friday Agreement to the intense loneliness of the indie disco, but mostly he writes about love, and this is one of his best-loved songs. It started out as the theme for Father Ted, and it turned into a beautiful song about writing about romantic adventure while other people are out having romantic adventures. We're going to put the whole song on our Spotify playlist. The link is, of course, in the show notes. This is a bit of Songs of Love. Neil, how did Songs of Love turn from the TED theme into this song about writing songs? Well, actually, it happened at the same time. Mm. Uh, I was writing the song, you know, I had a bit of a tune, sounded a bit like Enya, wasn't sure about it. (laughs) Then uh, Graham Linehan called me up out of the blue and said, do you want to have a go at writing a theme tune for our new show? And I hadn't really a clue who they were. (laughs) Um, I had seen a bit of Alexi Sales Paris, and it wasn't all that good. So, But I thought, I've never written a theme tune before, so I'm going to have a go. Yeah. I had Songs of Love in its infancy, and I had A Woman of the World from Casanova, and it had a whistly bit. Graham and Arthur loved the whistling. They thought, that's that's it. It's like a bit, you know, some mothers do have them vibe. The wonderful Mr. Patterson, uh, the great producer of the show, said, no, we'll have the Irish-sounding one, please. And... um Songs of Love became the theme tune. I don't know, one of the luckiest breaks I've ever had, honestly. Probably the luckiest, simply because 
it gave everybody sort of a different angle as well as just another band. But it also puts another angle on the show, doesn't it? Because Woman of the World is very much about ba da ba da, watching a sitcom, yeah. and Songs of Love is so poignant and so kind of like it really it fits so beautifully with the title sequence and the idea of like the sadness of isolation of you know Ted and Dougal and Jack. Absolutely, and also. They love country and Western music yes. in, in the West of Ireland. So it really suited my bad keyboards and <laughs> my kind of twangy guitar sound. Uh, so that was kind of lucky. I can really see you in a big hat. Uh, <laughs> Neil, I mean, musicians famously hate listening to their old records. How did you feel about digging through the old ones for the Charmed Life album? Did you surprise yourself? Did you think, who is this guy? Occasionally. I mostly surprised myself because it's like, what on earth was I thinking when I did that? But, you know, that's all part of the fun. There's some crazy stuff. There's some really good things. There's some things that I thought that I didn't rate at the time that I listen to now, and I think, well, that's a really good sounding record, if I may say so myself. Have You Ever Been In Love off Bangos The Night ah. is like one of my greatest ever vocal performances. <laughs> I'm not coming off too well in this. <laughs> I really should shut up. You are one of not many artists who managed to turn their kind of radio hits period into like a viable long-term career. How do you feel about songs like Something for the Weekend or Becoming More Like Alfie now? I mean, were you really living that lad life at the time, you know, down the Met Bar with Chris Evans and so forth? Uh, no, and nobody told me where the parties were. So uh, I don't know. I think I missed most of the fun in the 90s. Having said that, you know, as I've got older, I don't know whether this is just what happens, but I decided I didn't really enjoy all of that partying anyway. Uh, mm. I like leaving after about an hour, you know, going home and having a sherry in front of Frasier. I mean, on the face of it, the Divine Comedy are not kind of what your average Vasto record label would consider the perfect pop proposition. You know, it's thoughtful love songs, the sense of humour, but back-a-rack arrangements. And yes, it really works. It, it has its own unique character when you were starting out hitting pianos with a hammer and so on <laughs> did you have a did you have a vision you know i want to be the modern serge gunsburg and the indie rock michael nyman were these things knocking around in your head not really because i didn't know who either of those people <laughs> were when i started writing songs i wanted to be nick kershaw you know because i was 13 and he, he was enormous not stature wise but you know and i moved into indiedom in the mid 80s and then i wanted to just be in REM. And gradually, you know, I heard different types of music. And I was always kind of very curious about music that might have been that I hadn't heard. And I listened and listened and listened, found Scott Walker, and the rest is history, really. I've seen you countless times in, in, in things like performing with enormous orchestras and, you know, doing possibly financially terrifying <laughs> things. How did this go down with record labels? <laughs> Keith Cullen. I think he was just a wonderfully bad businessman you know, at Satanta <laughs> Records. And he didn't... I remember after those shows in the uh, Shepherd's Bush Empire when we recorded a short album about love with an orchestra live mm. there, he kind of found a bill. He, he was given a bill for the orchestra, I think for a sort of visual rights because they'd made a film of it. And he went, I'm not paying that. <laughs> <laughs> so he didn't pay that and the film never came out which he spent an inordinate amount of money making. Oh, no. Wow. <laughs> uh, we actually managed to get the rights eventually and put it out with the box set last year. Ah. So that was good. Um, it's a nice sort of period piece. The album uh, starts with an album track called Charmed Life, which most greatest hits tend to hit start with the banger, don't they? You've chosen to open with a song which is kind of a manifesto and also, you know, a, a song about being lucky, a song about things happening yeah. fort fortuitously for you. 
And it wasn't even a single. Mm. Basically, I took the opportunity to uh, draw people's attention to this song that I really like. <laughs> I, I also thought that, you know, I have led a charmed life. I don't know how I'm still here after three decades making exactly the sort of music I want to make. Somebody should have tapped my shoulder ages ago and sort of led me away. So, yeah, I'm just a very lucky boy. You, you have Thank been you. on Major Labour, so did anybody ever tap you on the shoulder and say, this would be great if you brought in a, like, hot, sexy girl singer or the machinations of the music industry that tend to bend people out of shape? Not really. I think I have confused so many people in the industry that they haven't really known what <laughs> advice to give me, mm. you know. I've never taken any advice, honestly. I mean, I'm just pig-headed and I know what I want so sort of instinctively that uh, I just go on and do it and nobody ever seems to stop me. So, you know. Mm. And and since we set up our own record company, nobody could stop me. <laughs> you can't cut yourself in from meeting with yourself and give yourself a hard stare. <laughs> it does rather sort of um, draw your attention to things that you enjoyed ignoring mm. before the bottom line. Yes. <laughs> um, you do start thinking, maybe I shouldn't get that session vibes player in <laughs> today, you know, <laughs> and just do it myself. Something that's slightly connected to that idea of like being on the edge of the party and actually not wanting to go to the party is that you often in your songwriting celebrate, you know, middle class life and quiet normality and staying on the edge of songs like Norman and Norma or Come Home Billy Bird. You know, pop music in general likes to kind of revel in this false idea of rebellion. Do you think that there's the kind of more staid values are actually more interesting to write about. Absolutely. I don't think there should be as many limits put on the subject matter for for songs in general. Mm. I mean, I, I'm not even sure if I make pop music anymore, really. I enjoy little peeks into everyday lives. They're usually vastly more interesting than the lives of uber-famous personalities. Yeah, there are no normal people. There are no, interesting no. people everywhere. No, that's why Norman and Norma eventually join a historical reenactment society <laughs> at the end of the song. You are writing songs for the Timothy Chalamet movie Wonka, which is coming out next year. It is the Willy Wonka origin story, isn't it? It is. Are you allowed to tell us anything about this? I keep worrying that, uh, you know, a sniper's <laughs> sight will come yeah. uh, to my head. But I can tell you that I've finished all the songs. They're almost finished filming actually but there's so much post-production in these enormous hollywood blockbusters i really don't know right uh, basically my plan came to fruition that one of these days a, a real uber fan is going to attain a position of power <laughs> and it happened and, and it happened paul king the director who did all the paddington films massive fan of mine mm. so nice. who else was he gonna get <laughs> I really thought I was going to be sacked after like a couple of songs, but it, it, the call never came. Are you pleased with them? I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> they're good. They're good. I think right. they're. I mean, I was trying to read from the uh, Anthony Newley, Leslie Brickus, Lionel Bart handbook, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. It's not frozen. I'll, I'll give good, that away. Nice. It's, it has that edge of darkness. And are, are you picturing lots of cane twirling going on with these songs? Endless case for <laughs> This is what we want. Yeah. So you are touring at last after not being able to go out at all for ages. Lots of symphony halls and theatres. I see you're also doing the Philharmonic in Liverpool, so don't miss the toilets over the road, Britain's most beautiful toilets in the pub, the Philharmonic pub. Marble <gasps> oh toilets, you can't miss them. I've played there before and I didn't know about You've this. got to do this, go over the road for a pint in the Phil. These, these toilets have been on television. I get the impression <laughs> that you are itching to get out and do this again. I really am. 
We've had breaks this long before, but never, you know, with somebody saying you can't go out and play. There's a difference, you know, yeah. subconsciously. I suppose with those breaks in the past, you know, we've got together as a band and crew, you know, for various other things, but we haven't done that this time. So uh, we're just all kind of desperate to hang out together on the bus, you know, and uh, go for a big jolly. Uh, I I really hope there are some shows when we get to the town. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think it'll change the way you play and the way you present the songs? Because, I mean, we were talking before we started recording how we've all missed going out at all, that the enthusiasm levels now are ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, the enthusiasm levels aren't so sort of hot in Zurich, where (laughs) I think we've sold... 8% 8% of the of the door. We'll see. I mean, the UK and Ireland, I think, should be fine and it's really you know, healthy. Well, to all our sales. listeners in Zurich, can you get yeah. buying before it sells yeah, out? Yeah, get down yeah, please. Uh, to your local ticket master or whatever. <laughs> or mistress. Or ticket. ticket master over there, I believe. <laughs> yeah, ticket master. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of well-supported stuff in Europe, but I think a lot of people are just waiting to see if there there will be a show. Mm. You know, Child Life is out next week. What is your favourite of these 24 songs? And don't say, they're all like my children, I can't possibly choose one, because it's going to make you choose one. They're all like my grandchildren, <laughs> or my nieces and nephews, <laughs> you know? Uh, my, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I really like... Tonight We Fly as a song, it just kind of does exactly what it needs to do and doesn't stick around too long. And it closes the shows so well every night. I just, I have a big soft spot for it. Mm. And it has an enormous explosive sense of release, which we like in pop music. Or relief. Or relief. (laughs) Getting to the end of the show. (laughs) Well, we're not going to play that. We're going to play my (laughs) favourite because I'm in charge. (laughs) Of course. We're going to play my favourite, which is A Lady of a Certain Age, which is this beautiful it's like a novella it's about a woman who was once beautiful and rich and she's now in decline and she's stuck on the Cote d'Azur it's got oh well she used to be on the Cote d'Azur she's got the most beautiful motif again this is not the kind of person that pop ever celebrates but it's a very compassionate song tell me about it where did it come from I was reading Noel Coward's diaries I did he was... know about this <laughs> stop <laughs> reading my diaries hey you're reading Noel Coward's diaries hey um and I'd been asked to write a song for Jane Birkin for an album she was doing at the time. So the two things sort of came together in my head and um, started writing this uh, lovely thing just about a sort of a an heiress, you know, in, in the 50s or 60s, jet setter. And then I realized the way the chorus went, you know, with the sort of the age that she was making up to the barman, she needed to get drunker and for the the age that she thought she was to descend, you know, to get lower. And for her, and this would sort of have to happen as her story was told right to the finish. And that sort of made me feel tired, (laughs) thought that I had to write another two very long verses. But I did it, and I'm very pleased I did it. About halfway through, I thought, I can't give this to Jane Birkin because she's going to think I'm playing a lady of a certain Mm -hmm. age Mm -hmm. to her, you know. And also, I wanted it for myself. (laughs) Well, it is an absolutely beautiful song. We're going to put the full version on the playlist, of course. Here's a little bit of it. Hanky's out, everybody. It's a heartbreaker. (laughs) This is the Divine Comedy with a Lady of a Certain Age. Chase the sun around the Côte d'Azur Until the light of youth became obscure And left you on your own and in the shade And the 
of a certain age And if a nice young man would buy you a drink You'd say with a conspiratorial wink You wouldn't think that I was seventy And he'd say no, you couldn't be Shall we go to the movies? Nightmare Alley is the latest film from Guillermo del Toro, following on from the Oscar-winning Shape of Water in 2017. As discussed with Linda Merritt last week, we thought we'd go and see it. It stars Bradley Cooper, Rooney Mara, Kate Blanchett and William Dafoe, amongst others, and it's set in 1941. Bradley Cooper plays Stan Carlyle, a man with a mysterious past. Of course he does. He gets a gig at a fairground and soon becomes a mentalist. That is, he uses a con artist code to develop a mind-reading act. But on the way, there are femme fatales and murky secrets. Noir, not off. Let's listen to the trailer. Step right up to the whole one of the unexplained mysteries of the universe. Is he man or beast? This creature has been examined by the foremost scientists and pronounced unequivocally a man. I am prepared to offer you folks one last chance to witness this supreme oddity. Where did it come from? Begotten by the same lust and threat that got us all walking on this earth, but gone wrong somehow in maternal wombs. Not fit for living. Is it a beast? Or is it a man? <laughs> Neil, I'm going to start with you because you've seen this Mm, last night. Wonderful. The film, it'll be fresh in your mind. It's based on the novel by William Lindsay Gresham and also the 1947 film starring Tyrone Power. Have you seen the original? or What did you know about it before you saw it? Um, No, I had no prior knowledge of this story. I didn't know much beyond the trailer on the telly, to be honest. Having said that, I did miss the first maybe five, ten minutes because I couldn't find my car keys. (laughs) Uh, And uh, I was in a bit of a panic. (laughs) But um, I think I saw everything I needed to see. Unless something really important happened. (laughs) Actually, it kind of does, doesn't it? (laughs) Does it? Well, it it is then referred back to you would have seen it then as a flashback. Andrew, as you saw the first five minutes, set this up for us and then we'll we'll go back to Neil. The first thing we see is this mysterious sound burning a corpse in a house, don't we? Yeah. That's quite a big thing, Neil. Oh. (laughs) Now it makes sense to Neil. Got it. Right. And then we see kind of, we see Stan's Odyssey where he ends up Mm. as a carny. He begins as a carny. Yeah. He he literally joins the circus to get Mm. away from Mm. the thing that has happened. Yeah. And we see how he progresses through the carny world and then parlays that into a rather classier position in, in New York, again, in the entertainment business. Yet he is dogged throughout not mm. by a kind of an original sin, really, isn't it? It's a, that he is uh, without I'm, I'm desperately trying not to spoil yes, this. But there is an, well, the very first thing you see is the original sin, which is going to pursue him. Yes, down it's the not years. explained. It's is not it, explained. We're not sure what side he's on. No, in that is sense. he burning a good guy, a bad guy? <laughs> 
what's going on? Is it in the past or is it in the future? Being a good guy. They're well, the interest, I mean, one of the interesting things about this is that Guillermo del Toro's movies have always been very fantastical. Mm-hmm. You know, they've always been set in parallel mm-hmm. worlds or magical worlds where where the supernatural is real. And this kind of plays with the idea of is the supernatural real or isn't it? Mm. You know, are the elements of mind reading, are they actually happening? So, Neil, pick it up from where you saw it. Have you seen Shape of Water and do you know the themes that you're going to get with the Guillermo del Toro? Yeah, in fact, I thought it would be kind of harder to stomach, you know, having seen Pan's Labyrinth, yes. which I found very disturbing in parts. The Shape of Water, not so much, but it was still, the, the visuals are incredible mm-hmm. in those Aren't films. They? Yeah, yeah. In this film, I felt he was actually making more of a kind of human character-led piece and um it's fascinating for that it's also incredibly beautiful i mean the way he shoots scenes oh, yes. i love the fact that he doesn't rush anything so many films these days look rather like pop videos and they're just fast editing yeah. mm. getting on with mm-hmm. it this one he just dwells on these perfect sort of moments and um kate blanchett i mean have you ever seen anybody more just beautiful in in those scenes in her uh, studio, you know, from a narrative point of view, by the end I was thinking, I kind of wanted a bit more of a sort of a, something to wrap it up with a bow, mm. but maybe that's just me, you know. Mm. <laughs> it left me feeling a little like, oh, so what? what? <laughs> you know, yeah. but maybe that's because I missed the first five minutes. <laughs> I, think, I think what I found a bit strange about it was I, I kind of found it hard to orientate myself in the film. And maybe this is because mm-hmm. I'm, 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 you know, a rather basic-minded person, but I sort of didn't know what kind of film I was watching until about two-thirds of the way through when it kind of snapped into focus. It's like, you're watching a 1940s schlock horror melodrama. That's what you're watching. Because previously I wasn't, I mean, you know, am I looking at a portrait of a kind of, uh, you know, a wasteland America? Exactly whose story mm-hmm. am I, mm-hmm. although we tend to follow the same character, yeah. exactly what is this story and why am I being told it? And when it snaps into focus, it does snap into focus as a very old Hollywood film noir thing. And all it was lacking was the kind of, uh, you know, MGM trumpets going, ba, 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 when the terrible thing happens. <laughs> Probably needs more songs, actually, Neil. <laughs> you, yeah, needs you on the I case. I, I agree. It's absolutely beautiful. Mm, and the carny scenes um, are incredibly you know, obviously they're very well realised. Of course they are. It's like sort of ridiculous to say that they weren't. What I found interesting in, in terms of his his selection, in terms of his catalogue, is that in past Guillermo del Toro movies, the fantasy world is both threatening and it's a place of refuge. Yes, you, absolutely. You step into the fantasy world because it's less painful. It's than about reality. his love of cinema as well. It is, there yeah. are so many. There are so many yeah. what they call Easter eggs in exactly. modern parlance here yeah. that refer back to films. Exactly, for but here the, the yeah. fantasy world is a little is just out of reach, and mm. the real world that we inhabit is so cruel mm. that it's you know early on we see a lot of motifs of hell, sin, the scourging of the body. It, I think that's why it's difficult to sometimes identify because he's not a wholly good character who's been drawn into so- something bad by. You know, usually it's mm. the femme fatale or it's desperate measures. He is he is a very flawed character to begin with. His own, and his so own, you don't yeah. always think, well, I'm rooting for the good guy because he's not a good guy. But as Linda was saying last week, it's had a difficult time at the US box office. And Martin Scorsese this week has written a piece for the New York Times to say, come on, everybody, come and see it. Mm. And because he's a big, big Guillermo de Toro fan. And I know that Bradley Cooper was initially the second casting. It was Leonardo DiCaprio was going to be in the main mm. role. So people have been put off a little bit like that. But I think it's just 
absolutely fantastic and I loved it. Not everything that I agree with about it and not everything sat comfortably. What were you going to say, Neil? I'm really glad Bradley Cooper did get the role because mm. I, th- I think Le- Leonardo DiCaprio would have, it would have been all about him. Mm. And I think Bradley Cooper is a nice kind of, almost a more of a blank canvas in the middle of the I film. I agree, yes, uh, yes. Sort of uh, put your own sort of thoughts and ideas onto it. And I think he's playing it blankly, and that's the problem that some people may have found, is that mm. it, there is a point where he, he's you just don't know which direction he is going to go in mm. and whether he could turn around and go, I'm going to be the good guy and I'm actually going to sort out these figures of authority, which mm. he doesn't do. I've got to say, although it's, it's stupendously well-mounted and stupendously well-acted, and shout-out to Tony Collette as well, who's always been yeah, one of my favourites, yeah. I did find it in the end kind of unsatisfying because I felt while I had been taken on a journey that was kind of quite it was emotionally powerful mm-hmm. I didn't feel that I'd been told anything new that made me think differently about the kind of moral staging posts that this character passed across you're going to oh, disagree with I me I am going to disagree with you because I thought why is this film being made now and I think it's my my take is it being a comment on the con artists that are in positions of authority now. And mm-hmm. that idea that it's very easy to hoodwink, especially a US population, with a load of snake oil. Mm. And that this is actually about the people that we that are in charge of the world. And mm. it's about global politics as much as that. It's a film I would definitely go back and see a few times, get a DVD and watch it. Yeah, yeah I would say that although, you know, I have that same feeling of slight unsatisfaction mm. if that's a word by the end of the film I, I would definitely watch it again you know um simply because it's a really ravishing film you know it's and, so rich uh, it's isn't got it? a lot mm. in it yeah. a lot going on you know who cares about the plot <laughs> yeah and, and, and actually i feel a bit bad because i don't want to be like the guy sitting on, on my chaise long t- saying peel me a grape this film has not quite satisfied my requirements it is a stunningly beautiful it ravishingly is. mounted intensely powerful film that I think doesn't just doesn't quite stick the landing, but mm. it sticks everything else. As regular listeners know, we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite tune for the listeners, and we attempt to clear them with the evil music <laughs> business, which sometimes won't let us. Hannah Verdier has duly carted her favourite in, which sadly we couldn't clear, but we're going to put it on the playlist. What have you chosen, Hannah? Well, I'm sorry to hear you couldn't clear it. Um, Mm. I have chosen a song from the new Years and Years album, Mm. Night Call, which is out now, and it's called Consequences. And I think that Ollie Alexander, who is now Years and Years, because the other members of the band have now left, I don't care how it happened, because I think he's one of the greatest pop talents we have. This time last year he was in It's a Sin, Mm -hmm. and now he's making music again, and I just think it's brilliant. A little bit 80s. A little bit retro, a little bit great. It's got you written all over it. Is it this, has. Oh, do you have people um, feeling the burn to this in your uh, <laughs> art life? This is some, yeah. yeah, they do get a little bit of years and years. They mm. do. And they He's a very good it. pop star, isn't he? He'd be good yeah. for Smash Hits material if Smash oh, Hits were still around. I keep thinking there's so many people that would be such good Smash Hits fodder, and he's my number one. Joel Corey is another one. Mm. Just great interviews they'd be. Well, we've got to chuck years and years yeah, consequences up. on the uh, on the playlist. But lucky Neil Hannon has chosen something on a plucky indie label, and there is a story <laughs> with it. We can play this one. Who is it, and why do you like him? Yeah, they're a band called Barbara from Brighton. A couple of young brothers called Henry and John. There's something about this uh, which is so kind of up my street. It's uh, really tight songwriting, very poptastic but in a slightly sort of 10cc steely down way. (laughs) 
it's a song called These New Communications, and it's so overtly a sort of critical piece of, about social media. Mm. And I thought, wow, lyrics that mean something that I want to listen to. Excellent. Yeah, it's like, I've got an idea, guys. What about songs that are about things? Yeah. Will, will it catch <laughs> on? a radical notion. Exactly. Well, there is a bit more story as well, because Henry Tideman from the band says, I'm genuinely a huge fan of the podcast. Going back to the Romaniacs days, I listen to Oh God, What Now on the Bunker every week. So we'll be listening right now. So shout out to Henry, his brother John, and bass player Jack Osgood. Thank, thanks who, for clearing your track as well, yeah, guys. They're all Bunker <laughs> listeners. Yay. Big shout out to you, chaps. <laughs> we're putting the song on the playlist on Spotify, so you can follow that link there to find more Barbara music. Because there's a lot of Barbaras on Spotify. It's Barbarama. And can I just say, they're playing in the Bedford in Balham next Thursday. They're playing in the Bedford in Balham next Thursday. Okay, there you go, all the bees. Yes, this is Barbara with these new communications. From that to some pop music for the ageing and angry man and the woman who has to put up with them. <laughs> I identify strongly here. Extreme Witchcraft is the 14th album by Eels, a.k.a. Mark E. Everett, the strange and singular artist who's charted a unique path from wry mid-90s hits like Beautiful Freak and Never Came for the Soul to his current role as spokesman for guys of a certain age who feel adrift and don't really understand why. Again, I identify strongly. <laughs> Extreme Witchcraft is produced by John Parrish of PJ Harvey fame and it comprises 12 compact proper indie rock songs. None of your 12 minute freakouts here, including one with the non more eels title, Better Living Through Desperation. It's out now. Will we like it? Will we get it? Let's find out after the first track, Amateur Hour. Eels with Amateur Hour from Extreme Witchcraft. The full track is, of course, on the rolling playlist. Neil Hannon. Musicians mm. famously hate reviewing other people's records because it's it's kind of against the musician's brotherly code. Where are <laughs> you on Eels? You, do you like him? I do, yeah. Mm. I mean, what's not to like? He's clever. He writes really catchy tunes. Mm. And, um, you know, from one sort of, sort of ageing indie star to another, <laughs> <laughs> um, I like listening to what, people of a certain age of my age are, are actually writing about and it, it, there's an amazing crossover actually between mm. uh, some of the subject matter so that's interesting what did you make of this one in particular yeah you know, he has in no way kind of blunted the noisy fuzzy edge of what he does no um <laughs> if you're not a fan of moody Wurlitzer, fuzzy guitar mellotron strings crunchy <laughs> drum sounds then you know this is not the record for you but Good Night on Earth is excellent, yep. you know, and <laughs> there's a great lyric. Everyone's a critic. I can't stand eels. So says Colin Firth. Yes. 
rain on my parade, <laughs> then the clouds fade. It's a good night on earth. Colin Firth uh, rhyming with earth. Is yes. genius, you know? It's a first for the rhymer's art there. I mean, his songs yeah. do tend to be kind of like a frame around his own life, don't they? Which is, is like a guy who doesn't like people much, likes being on his own but actually has a really great and bleak sense of humour about himself. And the, and the melodies are kind of childlike and optimistic. As a songwriting technician, as a person who can look under the bonnet, as it were, what do you think of him as a songwriter? I think there's a lot of clever stuff going on in there, actually, because I think he started out so much in the sample world, you know, mm. and kind of chopping other bits of songs up to make his. It's a different, really, sort of structure and technique to what I do, but I really love it. Stumbling Bee, for example, mm. um, just the image of sometimes I feel like a stumbling bee trying to fly in November. I might be dying. <laughs> yes, amazing. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yet the the music to that is far from you know it's it's not Joy Division times ten, is it? It's got a kind of no. picaresque. It's almost like a Sesame Street tune to it that makes mm. the you know the idea of being a stumbling bee on your way out almost feel tolerable. Well, exactly. It, He's a bit like me in in that he obviously revels in uh, melancholy sometimes, mm. you know. I don't think there's anything wrong with sort of sadness and kind of using that as a jumping off point. I think he makes the misanthropy kind of not comical, but he brings out the kind of humor in it. There's a, there's, a, there's a signature eel song from years ago called Hey Man, You Really Live In. And it's like you're on the floor of your kitchen crying your eyes out because she's run off and you'll never have anyone to love you ever again. Well, this you're now alive. You're now feeling everything. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. in a weird way an optimistic tune and almost a freeing tune. Yeah, yeah, the sort of liberation of complete despair. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get it. But yeah. also there's the liberation of like, there's a track on here called Strawberries and Popcorn. And the line is, if I want to eat some strawberries and popcorn for dinner, then it's up to me. It's about the joy of being <laughs> on your own. And literally nobody can tell you, get those filthy boots off my coffee table. But for Andrew, instance. this is where the crossover comes, because I wrote a song called How Can You Leave Me On My Own, which is effectively ah, about the same yeah. thing. Yes. It's like, You've gone away, and now I'm just eating brown food, you know, <laughs> uh, and you know, watching things I perhaps shouldn't. I enjoy the fact that somebody's out there writing songs that I could, I, I can get with. Strong identify from the guys on the podcast, Hannah Verdier. What do you think? Um, strangely enough, strong identify too. I really <laughs> enjoyed this. I love people that can make quite happy music with quite miserable lyrics. And I think he's mm. nailed it on this. Yeah. When you say about strawberries and popcorn, I love that. It's kind of post-post-divorce because he's kind of got the feeling that she's out of town, <laughs> but it's better than that because now he can just put his feet up and eat that strawberry and the popcorn. Yeah. So I do like that. And it's got a tiny shred of optimism, I think. It's like you're nearly there, but not quite. And I do like the kind of happy misery of it, actually. Yeah, and there's a track called The Magic, which is, I think one of the, one of the, his saving grace is, even though he's done a lot of music about the way the world can beat him up, and we'll talk in a second, Sean, about exactly how he's beat, mm, beaten him up, mm. he's still alive to beautiful things, to happy mm. things, and to little tiny things. He, he keeps focusing on things like steam engines and clocks. Mm. They are permanent things in the world. Yes, and the one about the, the grandfather clock. Mm. I actually got a bit of Prince there. I've got a bit yes. of Kiss from that. It's a nice kind of funky bit to go with the fuzziness of it all and yeah and I really enjoyed Stumbling Bee as well because it's just saying like that 
existential misery and am I on my yeah. way out? But he does it in a happy way. I love it. And he can he can really pair existential misery with a proper rock and roll freak out in two and a half minutes mm-hmm. that actually dispels the, the woe and the grief. Sean, he's got plenty, to, famously got plenty to be miserable about, hasn't he? Yes, Mom died yes. of cancer. Sister died of drug addiction. Father discovers the many worlds multiverse theory, is a theoretical physicist, mm. and then drinks himself into a fatal heart attack. Mm. And one of his cousins died on one of the 9-11 planes. And I think the last time we talked about an album of his, his dog had just died as well. Yeah. And it's oh, all... His dog was great. I, like, yeah. I, I met his dog. His dog was a lovely dog. Oh. <laughs> He's got new dogs, though. They well, yes, I was going to say, one of my favourite tracks. I mean, what I love about this is the John Parrish um, production, mm. which I just think elevates songs, which I find quite samey, as one of those people who quite likes it, but quite thinks he sounds like when he sings he's going to the toilet it's a bit of it's a style yes Maybe it's a style it has an almost Beatles arrangement at the start of that and then goes into something that's sort of akin to grunge sort of akin to PJ Harvey when she's going really nuts the John Parrish um, thing and that's what I really love when it got rougher and dirtier and mm. weirder but then it comes back to E doing his pop songs I do find him a bit a whole album of the man being a little bit sad and a little bit happy at the same time it's fine but I could now be going and doing something else um, but that's me being very cynical about Eels is, is I know people love them because the albums sound the same but sometimes I feel the albums mm. will sound the same well, I, think he's, I think he's an idealistic misanthrope he's not a yeah. cynic mm. I think that's, that's the reason that, that I like him although you're right you know the the pains of being a middle-aged white guy are not really top of anybody's agenda at the moment, are they? No, I don't think really. you get in a fair time, do you? And it's you? fine. We, we, you know, we, we, we can do with that. Are you all right? You're really all right. Well, yeah. okay. Don't we've had, worry we've about had a good us. run. We've got some true. some life in your life. We, yeah, just a little bit. There is, a, there is a, the, I think the last or the penultimate track is called I Know You're Right, and he like manfully builds himself yes, up to yes, agreeing that his great? girlfriend is right about something <laughs> and he's wrong, which is, which is a titanic Ever a style achievement mm. for any yeah. male. So I'd take what, what it isn't. That is a good song. Yes, like, that's, I think, cor- my The chorus mm. comes in and you are not expecting this. Mm. Just, you know, because he's talking about somebody who's saying, uh, you know, it is what it is. And then he gets to the chorus <laughs> and goes, just do what it isn't, you know, <laughs> which uh, I completely agree with the sentiment, you know. Yeah. Well, if you enjoy being miserable, and I do, <laughs> you will enjoy and- yeah, it's because it makes misery not miserable, and that, that's what I really enjoy. It gives enjoy it some it. validity. The legendary comedy writer Barry Cryer, who died this week, was probably responsible for more laughter and good feeling than any other single person since the Second World War. He started work at the Leeds City Varieties, home of the good old days in the 1950s, and afterwards he wrote for everyone from Morkman Wise to Les Dawson to Kenny Everett. He was a regular on I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue from 1972 up until his death. Culture Bunker regular David Quantic knew Barry Cryer well, and he tells us here about his friend and comedy hero. This week, comedy giant Barry Cryer sadly passed away at the age of 86. David Quantic, novelist, comedy writer and friend of the podcast, worked with him. David, where did you first come across Barry Cryer? I first came across him when I was a teenager on the on everything, really. He was on a radio show called Hello Cheeky. He was on the good old days. He wrote for everybody from the two Ronnies to Morecambe and Wise. He was on, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. He was a legend even in the 70s. 
Now, you've mentioned some of the people he worked for, but why was he such a giant in the world of comedy? Are there any specific famous sketches or bits that the listeners will know? Well, this is this is the brilliant thing about Barry. He was just somebody who never stopped. He was everywhere. The main thing was that people just liked him. I worked on a show a few years ago, which was hosted by John Cleese. John Cleese had come in from America and the producers were very nervous. So they made me phone John Cleese and I had a long chat with him. And John Cleese said, I need somebody familiar to be there on the day of the recording. I want Barry Cryer. So they hired Barry to basically sit with John Cleese and talk to John Cleese and keep him happy. And that's what Barry was. Everyone who met him, he told them jokes. He was friendly. He just he just made people feel great. And as a radio comic, on I say, I'm sorry, I haven't a clue. That show ran for decades with Barry in it. He was just everywhere. He was like a visible zelig. Now, you mentioned Hello Cheeky, and I know that you met Barry on multiple occasions and got to know him quite well. What was he like? The main thing about Barry was that many people who'd come to prominence in the 70s in the world of comedy felt a bit sad when comedy changed. They felt a bit washed up. They felt out of date. They were sort of unable to change their attitudes as comedy got what's now called woke, thank God. But Barry was never like that. Barry embraced the new. He always wanted to work with new people and know what was going on. And that stood him in good stead, the fact that even though he was not a young man, he was pretty flexible and always funny. Um, Mostly, if you talk about Barry, people will tell you about the stories that he told, which are sometimes beyond belief, especially the legendary Richard Briers and Nicholas Parsons story. So I'd, I'd been a big fan of Barry for years from Hello Cheeky and other shows, and I went for a drink with him after one of the many shows that Barry and I were working on. And he told me a story, which is that some years ago, Ross Noble, the comedian, was talking about his favourite comics to someone else. And Nicholas Parsons, the radio presenter, was there. And Nicholas said, Ross, you're a big comedy fan. Who's your comic hero? Ross Noble said, Richard Pryor. Nicholas Parsons said, really? And Ross said, yes, Richard Pryor. Why? Well, he had an amazing life. His mother was a prostitute. He grew up in a brothel. He fought drugs and alcohol all his life. But in the end, he was let down severely when, while trying to make crack cocaine, his setup exploded and he was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. Good God, Richard, Nicholas Parsons said, that's incredible. Five minutes later, Barry heard somebody, Nicholas Parsons, saying to somebody, have you heard about Richard Briers? I was, um, I presume, in a smoking area with with Barry and with Nicholas Parsons, and they were all chatting, reminiscing about radio days and so on. And Nicholas Parsons said, well, I must be off, and he walked off. And just as he was leaving, Barry, without dropping a beat, just shouted, wanker! It was a glorious moment. Just last month, he launched a podcast with his son, Bob, titled Now Where Were We? with guests like Stephen Fry and Miriam Margulies. Tell us about his incredible work rate. Barry would just churn stuff out. His, he appeared on radio shows. He wrote comedy for people. He famously had a hit record in Finland. He toured with Ronnie Golden from The Fabulous Poodles. He always described himself as a, as a gag writer, a lines man. And, you know, in this industry, it's very rare for people to be proud that they're writers. Most people just want to be stars. Barry's probably one of the few people who managed to become a star and a legend and a much-loved name just by being himself and by by writing. And lastly then, how should he be remembered? 
Uh, he should be remembered for his jokes, for his stories, and for the incredible warmth of his personality. And also for his astonishing habit of phoning people up any time that I had a radio show on or I appeared on the radio, I would get a phone call from Barry and it would always be, oh, love the show, Dave. Ah, here's a few gags for you. And it was just, (laughs) it was like someone shining a torch into your soul. It was wonderful. Finally, framed as a low-budget British film by Nick Rossini, now streaming on Amazon Prime. It stars Thomas Law and Lottie Amore, and it's the story about a young photographer who notices a woman in the window opposite and starts taking pictures. Let's listen to the trailer. Naked women and art. I mean, that's been done before. It's a bit cliché. Sorry, it's just private. Oh, what, now you care about privacy? You men are unbelievable. You just think with your dick. See, that's the issue. It wasn't a sexual thing for me. I just thought the situation was really, really interesting. How do you think she feels now? She doesn't even feel safe in her own room. This opportunity comes up and presents itself, then I've got to make use of it, you know? You just like her. Will you just admit it? Do you think she's using Obviously she's using you. What do you actually think that she likes having a stranger taking photographs of her? I just think you exaggerate a little bit. Hannah, I'm going to start with you. The setup is simple. Man takes photograph of neighbour. But the subject in question is barely dressed and obviously there are issues of voyeurism and consent which arise. What did you make of Framed? I thought, particularly the main character, um, well, actually everyone, it was just some white people with no redeeming features. (laughs) And the way he's taken some snaps of the foxy neighbour and then his best friend is the woke one who tells him that it might not be uh, the greatest moral thing very hard to defend. I must admit, I spent about an hour waiting for him to get shot. Mm. <laughs> and I really would have loved that. And also I had a few, not to do it down, I mean, I enjoyed watching it, but the dialogue as well was um, at some point, I thought I was watching The Only Way is Essex or something, mm. when the the annoying friend comes in, oh, I'm tired of being sexualised all the time. It's like, yeah, calm down, Beyonce. <laughs> and just some of the dialogue's mm. a bit, I find it quite hard, like what he's doing is hard to defend, but... He doesn't really get his comeuppance or anything. I don't want to spoiler it for anyone, but he doesn't get shot in the end. I just found it a little bit hard to understand in, in many ways. Mm. Is the twist, though, that when we think we know what's going to happen, the person who is the subject of these photographs then asks for more? And that, I think, is the interesting take, is that someone who we feel is being objectified actually wants that, and then we need to find out why. Was there any interest in that? It wasn't the twist I was expecting, mm-hmm. but... Was That's that what makes the... it a twist. <laughs> exactly. Oh, is that how films <laughs> work? How right, work. now I've got it. Oh, I see. <laughs> no, but it... Um, no, I found it quite a weak twist, if, right. that, if there is such a thing. Maybe a convenient twist. <laughs> Just a little bit of a cop-out twist for me, really. And... Also, the moral questions that it raised aren't solved by that mm. twist mm-hmm. because people don't really ask to be photographed naked by a stranger. It is this also does not happen. Illegal. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Um, Carl, the main character, Carl Oates, he's called, isn't uh, he? <laughs> he says at one point, it's not a sexual thing, it's part of my exhibition because he wants photographic exhibition. Mm. Andrew, did that persuade you? What he was doing, it was a great thing. Well, uh, art can justify anything, can't it? Perhaps it can't. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought this was a, an odd film. Look, I mean, it's a, it's a low-budget small film yeah. with new talent, so yeah. let's not try and batter it to death. Oh. 
I thought it was an odd film in that it's very much in the idiom of the classic Italian cinema where beneath the surface of respectability is a bubbling mm. sea of sexuality. So I thought the twist, which is that the, the woman who is, has ostensibly mm. been, you know, creep shots are being taken yeah. of her as she uh, performs her toilet, uh, <laughs> turns around and says, actually, I, I quite like this. And, yeah. uh, I, and it's quite turning me on, was simultaneously a bit on the icky side and also vaguely plausible in that, that, you know, sexuality isn't rational mm. and people behave mm. in all sorts of strange ways and all sorts of strange things turn people on and jolly good thing too. You know, let's not get into the kink shaming here. Mm. That said, I don't think it is really able to take that idea to a fully thought out conclusion. I think you're absolutely right. A lot of the dialogue is so on the nose. I felt like I had to, uh, you know, go for rhinoplasty after mm. I'd, uh, I'd seen this. You know, when people, when the conscience figure, the uh, the best friend. Virginia. Yes. And um, it's called Virginia as well, which is a little yeah. bit. I thought she was actually, I thought it was a good performance of her actually, but her, but her lines are, you know, they are, these are not the things that human beings mm. will say. Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh, I'm being so sexualized here. Mm. It was, uh, it felt like a charge sheet was being read out. Mm-hmm. That said, I thought there was I thought it was a game stab at taking a Hitchcock idea. Yeah. Someone takes with a picture they shouldn't take, yes. what happens, and placing it in the context of the modern world where we are perhaps yeah, a little absolutely. bit more aware and alert mm. to notions of male gaze, exploitation, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, here's my feminism PhD that I'm mm-hmm. putting on the table for you, Sean. Thank I you. I thought it was alive to that. Um that said, I don't think it pulled it off perfectly, but yeah. I think it's a, it was it, it's, it's it's an interesting stab at it. I think so, and I think it's drawing from really interesting influences. Yeah, and that's why there is something in it, and why I quite enjoyed watching it. I will do the trademark Sean comment in. I would like to see what a female director would do with material like that, given mm. exactly the same story. It would be interesting to then know because it is so terribly male gaze. But then that's the point. Yeah. Um, but it's well worth your time if you want to go and look up something and then look at these um he's done two previous shorts i think um and then see what he's done yeah and the actors are fresh out of drama school but they were i think they were better than the script weren't they the actors in some respects in some ways mm. so neil hasn't seen this neil yeah. do you, he's looking intrigued he's looking Neil's intrigued look i'm just thinking it's a, a man takes pictures of a woman he shouldn't take pictures <laughs> of is more like a divine comedy song <laughs> than it's like a film <laughs> Well, a Divine Comedy song from 1996, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, You're yes, now taking bits of right horses and pigs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, they don't want to have their pictures taken either. <laughs> By the sound of your review, I'm mm. not terribly sad that it is not allowed in Ireland. <laughs> it's only for licensing reasons, so this is not kind of like... It's not censorship. Bishop no. Brennan has not come hard down on this and said... Father Jack, Father Jack would like it. He would, yeah, Father Jack loves it, he'd love it. Yeah, but it's worth a go. It's, only, it's an hour and 25 minutes of your time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's this, we're not talking a 10-part TV yeah. series here. Anyway, finally, every week we ask our guests to choose the greatest songs of all time. Obviously, these are all classics, so we can never clear the bloody things. They go straight onto the playlist. (laughs) But, Neil, what is the greatest song of all time so we can add it to our database? The greatest song of all time, in my opinion, today, Andrew, is Mm. Alfie, Burt Bacharach. uh, Mm. And um, I particularly like the Scylla Black version uh, from the the original movie, the Michael Caine film. Yeah, Mm. It's just a staggering song to get so many sort of changes of colour and emotion in, in like a two-and-a-half-minute song. 
They really yes. knew how to write them in those days. Mm. Yeah. Yes, and Arcilla, uh, her trill has seldom been so well employed, has it? Well, as you know, I wave yeah. the flag for Scylla all the time. She's a fantastic. She was a fantastic singer. Mm. Absolutely, mm. and. Um, she bellows when she gets going, but it's a good bellow, mm. you know. <laughs> what a set of bellows. <laughs> yeah. What a set um, of pipes she's got on it. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I uh, love the fact that, you know, I think she'd done this about 15 times in, I think it was Abbey Road that they were recording in, with Bert uh, conducting the orchestra, her singing live. They, they'd recorded it 15 times, and, you know, she's still she puts that sort of intensity of performance into that 15th take. Incredible. Mm. Totally wasted on Surprise Surprise, wasn't she? Well, I suppose it paid the rent. It did. We, we were introduced <laughs> to a fantastic... I was, because I didn't know it, a, mm. a while ago on Big Mouth. That track, Surround Yourself with Sorrow. Yeah, because so- I introduced you, it because yes. I was doing my... my such a tune. This, isn't it? Surround Yourself yes. with Sorrow. Reclaim Scylla. Mm-hmm. Hannah Verdier, what's the greatest record ever made? The greatest record ever made is uh, The Temptations Get Ready. <laughs> It was written by Smokey Robinson, I believe, in 1966. This just reminds me, it's a real family song. When I was, uh, from the day I was born, my parents would play Motown on a Sunday morning mm-hmm. and then play everything around, every type of soul you could find. And it just really reminds me of that. And um, my dad has dementia, but before he um, became unable to communicate, I found I don't know if I've told you about this. Before I became unable to communicate, I found a handwritten list of his favourite songs ever. And there were about a hundred of them. Every single one was about love, apart from Eminem's Stan. (laughs) And I think it has the answer to everything in life in there. And this is just one of the kind of songs that was on that list. Oh, my God. It was absolutely incredible. It's a gift. And we can't talk to each other now. Mm. Sometimes I go in and we play those songs, and I think music really connects people. And I try and tell everyone about this, because if you made your playlist now, it'll always be with you. And when you can't vocalise it anymore, mm. those songs will be there and it's a gift to your family. You should do that as a feature for The Guardian or somebody. I tried to. I have done it for a, a women's weekly. There you go. But, <laughs> yeah. But I think it's an incredible thing yeah. and I think yeah. it's a gift and we should all be doing it. That's mm. a brilliant idea. That's lovely. Mm. There we go. Well, that's going straight on the playlist. Yeah. As Scylla and then Temptations go on there, the Bunker Rollin' Rollin' playlist... Imagine that band. We're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we get our granddad's Pentax out and part the curtains, <laughs> so to speak? Hannah, what's your closing time chatter? This week, I'm one of those people who, you know, in those old film trailers, they said, if you only see one film this year, I am that person. The film I saw was uh, Brian Wilson, The Long Promised Road. I really, really enjoyed it. It's basically Jason Fine from Rolling Stone who's built up a real relationship makes Brian Wilson feel as comfortable as he possibly Mm. can. They're driving around LA. People like Elton John, Don Woz, Nick Jonas have a a bit of a talking head element to talk about the Beach Boys and Wilson, which is not the good bit, but the great bit is just hearing all those isolated vocals from Pet Sounds, hearing a little bit more about it. Wilson can't massively communicate his feelings anymore, but it's just good to see him react, I think. And I really enjoyed it. And they play him the Dennis Wilson solo album and he's never heard it. And you just feel wow. all the bit, the brotherly love. Yeah, yeah. There is a bit of an icky bit where you can see he's coming over a little bit confused and they play voices of his abusive dad in the background, which is, doesn't sit massively well. But I think the rest of it's really nicely done and you'll, you'll shed a tear and it's just really worth mm. seeing. Mm. 
Neil, do you have a closing time chatter for us? I want to talk about non-fungible tokens. <laughs> OK. What, what the hell is all that about? <laughs> I mean, I, am, I, I keep reading about people selling things, but they're not selling the thing. Uh, they're they selling a exist. picture of the thing mm. for millions and millions of, <laughs> of dollars or pounds or euros. And I don't understand. Has the world really sort of uh, gone completely stark staring mad because Julian Lennon was selling pictures of his dad's coats uh, <laughs> this week, I think, and it's an, an, an NFT and you can buy this for however many hundreds of thousands. Why? Why would and you then, want that, that? And then do what with it? I know. It's a L- picture. Print it. Go to Snappy Snaps and print it. And they knock, knock off it. hundreds and stick them in the market. Exactly. Yes. But yeah. it's, it's but like the USB very, uh, you know, the zenith of uh, the emperor's new clothes. It's mm. like, mm. you know, no, he's not wearing anything. That's mm. ridiculous. <laughs> so Take everybody stop b- buying things like that because they're worthless. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> it's a fair point. It is a fair point. Yes. All the listeners, I know the, <laughs> they're on the button. They're trying. They're trying. They're yeah. deep press in return. NFTs. Press return. Yeah. Stop it now. No, lay off the NFT. What's your closing time chat, Andy? Um, R.I.P. Andy Ross, who was a lovely, lovely fellow. Um, listeners may have seen across social media that Andy Ross, who was one of the co- one of the co-founder of Food Records mm. and a former music journalist, who then um, went on to do something useful with his love of music, <laughs> like the rest of us. Uh, he set up Food Records with Dave Balfe and mm. they signed Jesus Jones and Blur and Diesel White West and Shampoo Shampoo <laughs> and Crazy Voice Head. Voice of the Beehive. Voice of the Beehive and all the rest of it. Mm. You know, he was like the unofficial kind of mayor of London's indie rock Camden, wasn't mm. he? Everybody mm. loved him, mm. would always buy you a pint, would always chat with, had no airs or graces, just probably... I would go so far as to say the nicest man in the music industry. He, uh, yeah, he, he did things like when the Good Mixer, before it became the Good Mixer in mm. Camden's favourite, he decided, jukebox, there's nothing on there. I'll give them all the food records. And that's why people started coming to the Good Mixer, because then mm. they could hear <laughs> decent music. And he yes. started that off. You know, <laughs> small things like that, but that creates a scene. And then that creates communication. That creates yeah. people moving to London to be part of that scene. And that's creativity. I think, you know... These things we you know feel that they're small and slight things, but he was so pivotal. Well, a, f- a friend of mine used to go and see a lot of the food bands, and I won't say which one because it's it, this is from a Facebook mm. post. But he's going to see what, one particular food band mm. quite a lot, and Andy said, "You're really into this band, aren't you?" Yeah, I am. He said, "You should join them," and he did, <laughs> <laughs> and was in the band for ages. You know, and, and to this day is yeah. in the band. Yeah. So you know, um, and we, next week, if it's okay with him, we may well reveal who it is. But um, <laughs> but like that, he was just he was a complete. Completely well-loved fellow, wasn't mm, he? And it's absolutely. such a terrible, terrible shame. Yeah, he was a really good guy. And uh, I didn't even know that that had happened. I'm so sorry. Oh, to mm. yeah, yeah mm. It, was, it was this week. It was, he was only 66. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. It's yeah. a shit business. Yeah. All right, pay Andy. It's, it's very absolutely. sad, but Andy, we loved you. We did. Sean, how about you? Um, I just that Spotify has been in the news three or four times this week. The main one being that there is going to be a UK watchdog headed by... what. Off spot. It's <laughs> <laughs> yes, off spot. Are going to come in and they're going to say, "Hmm, Spotify, you're not paying anybody. 
what are we going to do about this? Like, we know. We know what your report is going to say, Offspot. We know that you don't pay the artists. You, they are the people who are not getting the money and they, that kind of needs to be changed. Why are there even to be a watchdog but then we've got Neil Young saying take all my music yeah. off because of the Joe Rogan podcast we've got Jordan Peterson um, this week on the Joe Rogan podcast saying really stupid things about the climate isn't the time coming is this meaning the time coming that Spotify does fall off that pedestal that there is some sort of change because I still think it's you know as much as I use it and I have months where yeah. I refuse to pay for it and try and actually just to listen to records I've bought for instance yeah, you know. with money. Yeah. yeah with actual money it's difficult I know but it can be done um, because it, it is it is ruining the music business but it is ruling the way that people listen to um, music at the same token so it will be interesting I just want to know can who's going to be the head of Offspot it's going to be Paul Dacre or somebody isn't it Charles <laughs> yeah. Brandris <laughs> Maybe Desmond Giles Swain, Brandis Michael Fabricant. He knows? may be a benign dictator. I think Giles Brandis. What, for what him. on earth is music? <laughs> what is music? Will it ever catch on? And that is the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Neil Hannan. Yay! Pleasure. Lovely to be here. Invite me back. You, we are welcome to come back. Charmed Life out next week on physical vinyl product as well as digital things. And thank you also to Hannah Verdier for thank joining you. us. Welcome back anytime. Listeners, don't forget, you can get all of the tunes on a rolling Spotify playlist. <laughs> oh, right, yeah. Other platforms are available. Oh, yeah, There's but... a thing where you can move it okay. to Apple or to Deezer or to someone that pays people better title. Okay. Well, the link's at the top of the show notes. <laughs> and one day the artist will get paid. <laughs> uh, from me, Sean, producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofrinevich, thank you all for listening. We'll see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Sean Pattenden. The assistant producer was Yelma Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. Culture Bunker.